And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's The Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of The Rodcast, David Steele! Yes, that is what we're talking about. Very nice. There you have it, folks. Another fine introduction by our friend Larry Babb, the best damn announcer in the world of hot rod podcasting, which uh, it's a pretty good place to be, if you ask me. Uh, yes, you've tuned in to another fine episode of the Rodcast brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation. My name is David Steele, and I am... Truly excited to be bringing you this very special show today. Uh, we have a guest on today's show that I think brings together two things that I have to assume are driving forces for most folks who tune into this show. Uh, hot rods and rock and roll. And, you know, what else is there if you have food and water and air? <laughs> uh, actually, I suppose there are a couple other life essentials that... Uh, we may not be able to talk about here, but uh, but there you go. Um, but that said, first, uh, first a little housekeeping. I want to I want to say welcome back uh, to all of our listeners. I know we were off for a while, and I can I can only tell the truth and say that that was my fault. A uh, little thing called a honeymoon happened in my life. I'm happy to say. And uh, it did take me away from the podcasting desk for a few weeks and uh, and over to merry old England for a time. But uh, we're back and we're hoping that this episode we're returning with will make up for the gap caused by my little getaway. Now, I also want to thank uh, there are several people who reached out to us in the wake of our last Rodcast episode uh, regarding the Hot Rod Stories project. Uh, we aired that episode with Bob DeMore as as a sort of example of this ongoing project. And in case you haven't heard it, the American Hot Rod Foundation has has started a nationwide program to try and, I guess, widen the net and uh, and gather as many stories and as much hot rod and racing history as we can from every nook and cranny of our nation because, it's, it's just incredibly important to us that we document and save the hot rod history that happened in every state of the union, not just California. And, um, you know, seeing as how myself, uh, our historian, Jim Miller, we live and work here in Southern California, so we can only do so much from where we're located. And so that's why we're asking that any folks who are willing and, and live somewhere where you know a lot of early hot rodding went on, Please contact us, and we'll let you know how we can join forces and and make sure that the hot rod pioneers who broke the trail in your neck of the woods not only get the respect and attention that they deserve, but more importantly, that their their stories are documented and saved for future generations. Um, as someone who's had the good fortune of living in several different places uh, around the country in my lifetime, uh, New York. Uh, Indiana, Boston, Tennessee, and now California. 
Um, I happen to know firsthand that hardcore hot rodding happened everywhere, everywhere I've been. And each and every story is an important part of the overall fabric uh, of this great movement. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh, I know someone that needs to have their story told or, or I'd love to see the early hot rodding that happened here in my community uh, archived and saved, please drop us a line. You can email me directly at david at ahrf.com. That's david at ahrf.com. And we'll take you through the steps of how we're, you know, we're already doing this, uh, you know, and with some truly awesome folks who've stepped up to the plate to be a part of this and, and the information and history that's coming in from all different parts of the map is blowing our minds. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, for example, uh, we've had a friend of the foundation by the name of Joel Driscoll, uh, step up to the plate recently and he's absolutely floored us with what he's been able to educate us on, uh, regarding early, uh, hot rodding in and around his hometown of Richmond, Virginia. Not only has he found loads of documentation and newspaper articles on the hot rod movement that was happening there in the early and mid fifties, but, uh, he's located and been speaking with several of the guys who were the main instigators of that scene back in the day. And these guys are sharp as tacks. They have amazing stories to tell and they're proud to have their piece of the puzzle uh, brought out into the light. So again, if not for these people, uh, this stuff would be in danger of being lost to the mist of time. And, um, if there's anything we don't want to see happen, it's some early hot rodder or early racers achievements just becoming hearsay or rumor after they're gone. Uh, not only is it not fair to them, but it also deprives future generations from learning from these innovators and, you know, really having an understanding of what they accomplished. So, um, again, if you're interested in helping us out with this, uh, email me and we'll either send you out a recorder or we'll send you some instructions on how we go about scanning and archiving the materials we receive from you. And, you know, just know that, you know, we keep nothing. That is not our policy. Uh, we'll return everything back to you along with digital copies of the materials and it's all free of charge. So, uh, the way we see it, uh, there is only upside to being a part of this uh, little hot rod army. And uh, I think, you know, together a lot can be done to help fill in all the color of, of what was done, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago and more. So we look forward to hearing from you. Now, speaking of hardcore hot rodders, today's guest is a very special one for us. Uh, if you've tuned into this show we have to assume that you already know how dedicated Jeff Beck has been to hot rodding his entire life. Uh, in fact, it would appear that it's, it's as big a part of his life as anything else, uh, including his music. And that is really saying something because, you know, we obviously all know that he's, he's one of the most influential musicians on the planet and has probably shaped an entire generation of guitar players. So I don't say any of this lightly. I mean, uh, 
if building hot rods was the only thing he did, uh, it would be completely believable. As you'll hear, his attitude about it, his knowledge and his passion for this stuff is at as high a level as possible. Uh, starting with the fact that he possesses one of my all-time favorite car guy qualities, and that is he's got the long-term ownership gene. Um, you know, when, when he zeroes in on something, it is not a passing fancy. Uh, it's a lifelong dedication, and most of the cars in his collection are just that. Um, uh, much like his passion for the film American Graffiti, uh, it never gets old for him. It just continues to evolve and mean more and deeper things as the time passes. Um, I mean, simply put, he gets it. He just gets it and gets it big time. Um, I had the pleasure of basically spending the day with him a couple weeks ago uh, while in England. And what was originally supposed to be, you know, like a two to three hour visit in order to, to catch up and hopefully uh, do a short interview. Well, that turned into one of those memorable days where uh, the fun of simply looking at and discussing hot rods, you know, kind of obliterated <laughs> any kind of quote unquote schedule that uh, either of us foolishly thought we could keep to. And I, I know there are many of you out there who know exactly what I mean. I mean, this is something that car guys do. I mean, can you begin to count the times a situation like this has made you late for something? <laughs> I mean, believe me, I, I, I stopped counting years ago and uh, my poor wife is doing her best to be patient. But uh, it's just something that happens. It's something we do. And, you know, you think you're stopping by to see someone's roadster or project or both. And the next thing you know, you've been pulled into the deadly undertow of a hot rod hangout. Um, I mean, it's a classic situation in our little world and something that only car guys really get because, uh, well, you know, sometimes the world has to stop because there's some damn hot rods to look at and talk about. Um, but, uh, anyway, all that said, we here at the American Hot Rod Foundation are pleased to know Jeff as a friend and someone who's gone out of his way to support our work. Um, he's really been there for us and, and going back, I mean, it would ha 10 years or more um, to the earlier days of the foundation uh, being up and running. For example, you know, getting Jeff to appear in our film documentary Deuce was, it was just as easy as asking him. I mean, He's just always happy to help, and we really thank him for that. And we thank him again for giving of his time so that we can bring you this uh, very entertaining and interesting talk with uh, one of our premier hot rod ambassadors and a, uh, a seriously cool customer and good dude. So um, without any further ado, we now present our talk with the great Jeff Beck. Well, if you don't mind, I'll start the way we start every time. All right. First of all, thanks for joining us. This is really great mm -hmm. to have you here. Isn't it? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I ask everybody the same question right off the bat. 
Where were you born and when? Oh, uh, okay. I think I was born in Wellington, in Surrey, um, in 1944. Hard to believe, isn't it, folks? <laughs> yes, it is. Um, just at the end of the war, I got the tail end of it. And uh, in my book, which you can buy, um, there's a picture of the house, which I narrowly escaped. Oh, well, I'm, we all narrowly escaped. We're talking about 44, probably December 44, I think it was. Mm. There was a bomb went off uh, in the next street, but the damage was quite severe. And then following, and funnily enough, when a bomb goes off, the damage is, is, can be widespread and not just in the place where the bomb went. But uh, we lost a, a few windows. Um, and luckily I was under the bed co covers, so I didn't get, I didn't get injured. So that's my beginning in the world, and uh, wow. that's why I've probably been twisted ever since. <laughs> that's a pretty volatile uh, yeah. first couple of years. But everybody was okay in your family? Yeah, yeah. My mother shielded me from the story because uh, the window that were blown out, they, they stored them, the frames and the broken windows were stored behind a, a coal bunker. And my mother caught me looking behind the coal bunker one day. And she freaked out and said, don't you dare look at the, that. So she obviously didn't want me to ask questions. So where does it where does it start? Did you have a dad who was kind of into things mechanical? Uh, he was a, a little bit of a car enthusiast, but he didn't have a clue. He couldn't he couldn't even handle a screwdriver. But my mother's brother was the man. He was the the mechanical. He had, apparently had um, one girl, lady friend, one girlfriend who dumped him, and that was enough for him. And he fell in love with his car and stayed with, <laughs> they became a couple forever. And I understand where he's coming from. <laughs> he stayed 17 forever. Yes, he did. <laughs> and uh, thank God um, for my mother and father, uh, they'd had enough of me during the week, so they, they shunted me off to him, my uncle, my dear uncle, for the weekend. And I just, it was paradise. You had uh, violins. Um, there was a, a, a cello in the corner, clarinets lying around, and just the best toys for a kid of like four, six, whatever. So he was a musician? Yeah, he played a wonderful violin and a clarinet. And uh, he used to drive an MG, uh, even if it was raining, he'd have the top down, and he'd park in a wood and play the violin or the, the whatever, you know, just to be alone, you know, in the woods. I think it's just the coolest thing. But he used to make me watch what he was doing in the workshop. He had a little tiny workshop and tear an engine down. He'd take this MG, he had a 47 TC, I think it was. And uh, I was bored stiff, but he made it entertaining. He said, pay attention. So he said, if you want to ride in it, this is what you have to learn. Otherwise, I'm not going to take you in it. So that, that was the temptation, you know, that was the challenge to pay attention to what was being done to the engine. We're talking about probably six, seven, eight, all those years when I watched him pulling valve springs off and changing valves and stuff. And the car would break down and that was the most exciting thing. The car would break down when he stood on the pedal, broke the axle, then we had to have the breakdown miles away from home. That was the best fun. That's and the so, adventure. Yeah. yeah. So I knew what to do when my first car broke down. So thanks to him, I learned a lot from that. Hmm. He, he wouldn't have approved of hot rods, I don't think, but um, I think if he'd have sat in one and pressed the pedal, it might have changed his mind a bit.
but a horsepower of the 40s and 50s on a TC MG wasn't quite what we talk about nowadays. It sounds like he was, in a lot of ways, everything as far as yes. a turning point for you. He was. He was a guiding light. Uh, where my dad failed miserably. <laughs> he well, my dad was working. He used to get up at 6:30 and wouldn't get back till 7:30 in the evening from London on a train. So more power to him for doing that to bring in the the bacon, but uh he didn't have time for me at all. I mean, he was cricket. Uh the weekend would be cricket. That's it. He he definitely earned that place down at the cricket club, you know. Mm -hmm. But I got pushed out, you know, and I became a nuisance, and then that's why they packed me off to my uncle. And thank God they, that they did, because he took me on the river. He he told me about the moon and the stars and the planets and little bitty spacemen. <laughs> Couldn't get. Um, but he hated rock and roll. That was where we we had a parting in the ways. He was more of a jazz guy. Oh yeah, no, he he was, but suddenly turned against it. And I cannot, I could never understand why he turned against jazz, because once you become a jazz fanatic, that's it usually. Yeah. But he must have had some rub with some, something rather. But he said that is the most filth music of all time, non-musical, you know, rubbish. And then he turned it to classics. Maybe it was because he discovered classics. Uh, but if I let him know for one second that I play blues, he would have. Uh, I would have been history, you know. Hmm. And I think he did find out <laughs> that uh, my mother used to report daily, you know, what I'd been up to. They were very close. So I have to ask you then, did he have a guitar in the house? Oh, no. <laughs> the word guitar, he said, when he heard that I was interested, he said, it's not a proper musical instrument. You know, it doesn't, it, the violin is a proper acoustic musical instrument played with a bow, blah, blah, blah. I thought, wait a minute. What about a piano? You don't make the sound. The piano is already has an in, you know inbuilt sound that anybody can make when they play. Argument out the window. You know, it was the association time changing. I think he couldn't cope with time change in such a rapid way, and into something which he disapproved of. Mm -hmm. That that would probably be the case right across the board. You know, rock and roll was the most threatening thing for a child. You know, for a kid growing up 12 to 14 years old. Um, and then suddenly wanting to be one of those people, you know. Maybe it was uh, the kind of wildness of bebop that turned him away from Yeah, I mean, excuse me, what about uh, Lindy Hop? You know, they're flinging pe girls in the air with their knickers showing. <laughs> that was pretty radical stuff back well, then. Yeah. And then we do it again in 1954. Big deal, you know. Mm. And there must have been something right about it because people still want that, even today. All over the world, you've got rockabilly revivals and you know we just saw one yesterday <laughs> yeah yeah it is amazing that it just speaks to the power of of that music yeah gene vincent and johnny don't Burnett get me started die, man. don't talk me talk don't start me on that we'll be here all night but uh, that's i think a hot riding the same way it, it it's it a religious a it is i th i the the people that i know from those that era are, are converted to it. They'll never be swayed. You know, I think you, there's never been a music movement since then that's ever come close to it. I mean, the 60s, uh, you know, it's a fragmented and then the 70s, they lost their way. 80s completely lost their way. Fashion wise, 
baggy pants, you know, stupid outfits. <laughs> and then the curse of the synthesizer, you know, and the drum machine. Mm. And we're still suffering from that, yes. even today. Yes, we are. But, you know, you know, hot running kind of lost its way in, yeah. the, in the 80s. Yeah. To an extent. And Why do you think that was? I'm going to put the question to you. Man, this is such an interesting one, I think. It's, I think it's just a cultural thing, Yeah, is how I would answer that. I think if you look at the music, yeah. the music was soft, and there was, there was <clears throat> human input that seemed removed yeah. from the music. And, and when I see those kind of peach-colored, uh, billet-laden hot rods, street rods, yeah. in the 1980s, yeah. I don't feel like I know anything about the person that built that no. car. And I felt the same way music. That's interesting. That like well, I, you know who to blame? Know you know, John Butero. <laughs> He's the guy that came out with the billet this, that, and billet the other. That was his thing. And admirable though it was, it, it just caught fire in the business. And everybody went, I want billet. I want my mirror to be a billet mirror, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's not Get his rid fault of it. And now, and now you still uh, avoid it like the plague. Yeah. Yeah, poor guy. I mean, it, he couldn't have seen what was coming. No. But no, I met him. He's great. I mean, that that was it. Model A rotor he had, pretty special, mm. amazing, radical. But uh, not wasn't for me, and I did I did have a, a billet mirror which I've had crushed. It's all right. So <laughs> it's remains. Yeah, ceremonial are, crushing. It's remains are on. Yeah, I pretended I didn't own it. <laughs> it was a neat little peat mirror as it happened, but. Uh, we don't go there, do we? No. Well, no. Now, okay, so backing up then. Yeah, to... to about the 1950s. Vans, the California vans played a part, you know, with the long shaggy carpets, didn't they? In the 70s? Yeah, it was a place now. that you, you could go take your chick, you know. Can you believe that? They're yeah. coming back. Oh, no. I see them in L.A. No. Like I, restored and survivor 70s, like disco vans. No. People are crazy. Well, hopefully it'll be a short-lived fad, you I know. I think it will be. I think people will... Oh, but yeah, then again, who'd, who'd believe that I'd ever rebuild a tea bucket, you know? That's different. I just looked one, <laughs> sh uh, one shot of the, the grasshopper, and I thought, oh no, <laughs> up to the garage straight away and see what I got. And, oh, uh, I'm all for that. Yeah. Yeah. I had more fun in that thing, you know. It's the simplest form of transport, isn't it? So a square frame, engine, wheels, wiring, done. Well, you know, getting back to the kind of my, anyway, for what it's worth, take on this kind of cultural, you know, it's the culture that's driving this stuff and it's reacting to what's going on in the culture at the time. To me, that's how I look at hot rodding in the 50s It's and, and rock and roll in yeah. the 50s. It's the most basic version of yeah. that. It's the purest and most direct. Yeah. Like your tea bucket you just yeah. described is... It's yeah. like Johnny Burnett and the Rock and Roll Trio. But excuse me, can I, mention, can, I, <laughs> can I mention one name? Ralph Nader. Do you think he's responsible for the demise? Um, plus the fact that as music gets rejected by subsequent generations to the previous music, maybe that's the case. I don't want to be like my dad. My dad had a car like that. Mm. I want something that kids drive today. You know, maybe that's it. Or the shortage of material, you know, raw materials. Well, they weren't knocking out fiberglass bodies that much, were they, at that, at that crucial point? Sure. You had to be either knowledgeable or in the know some way to sustain the, the hot rod interest. 
and then you've got uh, Westcott, and then the steel repro bodies that were coming out, mm -hmm. and then Graffiti. <laughs> mm -hmm. That Cute. probably is the single most amazing film that, that rekindled any, any spark of interest. I would, I would not disagree with that, yeah. man, as you know. Yeah, okay. Do you want to test me? <laughs> I feel... <laughs> Maybe we'll do an extra, like, a, like a, an extras part of the podcast where we have a, a graffiti uh, yeah. dialogue for yeah. now. Yeah. Um, I, resi I resisted going to see that, but prime, just because I'm an awkward person, um, I think it was uh, my management secretary who used to know, she knew what I was into, you know, obviously it was very difficult to camouflage. She said, I think there's a film out that you should see. I took my kids and they, they loved it. It's called American Graffiti. I went, no, they, yeah, the modern films don't interest me. And she said, no, it's got some hot rods in it. I went, yeah, I bet. Rejected it, rejected it. And then I saw a clip and I thought, excuse me, I think I'll go and see this. <laughs> I still didn't, wasn't sure until I came out of the, the movie theatre and then I thought, I have seen God. I've seen. <laughs> Do you think it was because you felt like, well, there's no way they got it right? There's yeah. no way they got it I'm Yeah, see I've never movie. seen a movie where it isn't embarrassing. And that one had nothing, not a bad sh shot in it, as far as I can um, no, I mean the California kid was all over the place with mistakes and, you know, uh, it, it was a good but it just, the way that the story was based on someone's experience, that one night was condensed into this uh, fabulous film with every line just tailored perfectly and the background music. The genius of it was the soundtrack of all these great records. Um, playing constantly and the fact that I had already been in LA in, in 65, early 65 and Wolfman Jack was still broadcasting. I think he came back as a trendy thing uh -huh. and I remember this friend of mine, his girlfriend who had this surfing friend and he was a bit of a bohemian kind of rich, rich uh, family but he drove a Volkswagen with a surfboard on it and he told me about XERB. That was XERB, mm -hmm. and they they put that out. I don't know they're the old tapes, whatever. But I went Wolfman Jack. All right, they said he was Ch Chinese, Japanese. <laughs> he spoke with his funny voice, but no, I just uh, mesmerized by it. They played all the right stuff. I remember seeing him around in the seventies and eighties when I was a kid. He'd be on random game shows. He'd Don Kirshner. Was it Don Kirshner? Don Kirshner's. But wasn't wasn't uh, Wolfman Don involved? Don Kirshner's in? rock concert. Yeah, Isn't that what it was called. I think it was. I don't know. Better cut this bit out, folks. <laughs> yeah, this is making great radio. Speaking <laughs> of Wolfman Jack, he's spinning in his. Sorry, bed. Wolfman. <laughs> Have a popsicle. Yeah, <laughs> they're melting all over the place. <laughs> uh, I've got a whole fridge freezer for Lulu. Well, okay, then we're since we're here talking about it. What else? What is it about graffiti? Why is it? Um. I was, I, I actually, I think it was because I, I was Milner. I, you know, I had that same, I was driving a Zephyr. It wasn't a, a yellow, piss yellow juice coupe, but it was a Ford Zephyr. I got pulled over for the stupidest things because the town I came from was exactly like the small town he came from. The police was, were on you like flies, you know, 
uh, if you had a car that was slightly modified, if it had white wall tires, or, and I had this thing plastered with trim, you know, there were vents, chrome vents on the side, and I think it had flames or something on it, and that was like a red rag to a ball in the pl local police station. Beck, pull over, it was exactly that. So when I saw this, I thought, this is, th this is my life story on this film. <laughs> Almost, yeah. I just thought this is the cool. I mean, uh, Milner, you know, I just thought this is as close as I'm ever going to get to watching my life story. <laughs> and so what, when was that for you that you had this car and was that your first car? Uh, 60, it was be 62, 63, yeah. So, and that was your first car? Well, it was my first, uh, I drove, you know, I got stung several times for driving without a full license. Mm. Um, but you weren't going to stop me from getting around. I had to have a car yeah. to talk, uh, you know, to play, you know, gigs and stuff. Oh, even though there were very few and far between. Um, then I I started working at a uh, paint shop and a panel repair shop, and they said, "Look, Jeff, you know, why don't you just get a license? Well, you know, don't drive this car to to your examiner. He'll just laugh at you. You know, take a a couple of lessons in a mini." I went, "Oh." I was so shocked at the suggestion that I should drive a Mini or get in one even. And I had a stupid board on the top saying learner, you know. <laughs> That's not Milner would have done, you know. Yeah. And they said, oh, if you want to walk away with a pink ticket, do what we say. So I did it and I passed straight away with a, with a, without any problem at all. Two failures, as soon as I got in a school car, they passed me and I was jumping in the air, you know. Um, got, and I bought this Zephyr and I sprayed it candy red and it had white walls on it. And it was like a custom, a bit like a Ford uh, Merc, a little bit scaled down version of that. And that's what I had, you know. So when I saw graffiti, that started it all over again. <laughs> and how long did you have that car? A um, couple of years and I, I just, uh, and then I joined the Yarbos in 65. And by 66, I had enough money to buy a 63 split window Corvette. Look out. I own the place, all right? <laughs> in England? Yeah, it was ridiculous. Yeah. It had to be like a I had crowds of people gathering around my mum's driveway just to stare at it. It looked like it had come out of a space movie. Where did you get that car? Where did you find it? I had a friend who worked for a, um, a firm called Godfrey Davis. And they, they sold cars and they rented them out. There was, it was like Avis. But um, I, he said he was a guitar fanatic and I taught him a few things. And he said, if I, if I can help you in any way, I said, find me a 63 Corvette. And uh, I came off to her and he said, I've got one, silver blue. And it took every penny I had and I bought it. And uh, the, the rest is history. The other members of the band bought um, interest in a, f a fruit and veg shop. <laughs> exciting, eh? How exciting is that? <laughs> you were a little different than your yeah. friends. <laughs> I just thought fruit and veg or the Corvette, which is it going to be? <laughs> it seems pretty straightforward to me. No, my mother, of course, she said, those boys are so smart, they're so... Of course, you're a ridiculous idiot. You should have done what they did and invest in something. I, I did. It's a blue 63 vet. And uh, there's nothing that could ever substitute those moments. Mm. You know, that, that magic of actually owning that thing. You know, quite special. And what, 
and you said the car was silver blue. Silver blue, yeah. Four-speed car? Four-speed, uh, silver blue, dark blue interior, and the smell when you turned on the heater, I'll never forget it. There's some magic smell came out of that thing. And uh, I just, I didn't even have really enough money to, to drive it, you know, to, to run it. But I did, you know, and every penny went into it. Uh, I crashed it on this slippery road, and I, I, I'll go into the story in my book because it's pretty long-winded, but uh, I was not guilty at all. But they, they saw me, rock star with a guitar, and I hit, I skidded on this, there was a diesel spillage, um, and the, it had been drizzling. It was late at night, like one o'clock in the morning maybe, and the car just decided to go sideways for no reason. So I'm sideways onto this poor guy in a rented car, he was a Japanese tourist, and smashed into him. The whole front of the Corvette was stoved in. Went to court and they, they threw the book at me. You know, I, was no, I didn't even bother to defend it. But when I thought recently, I should not have been, I should not have taken it lying down because it was an accident. I wasn't going crazy. Why would I deliberately smash up a Corvette that I'd put every penny into? Uh, but they had a fake witness. The police got this fake guy and he said he heard a screech of brakes. How could you hear a screel of brakes in the wet? And that's what happened. And he lied. So if you're still out there, <laughs> the judge would be long gone by now, so there's no use in reopening the case. But that's the way it was, you know. If I had been in any other car and not in rock and roll, I would have got away with it and said, you know, sorry about that accident that happened. And was that the end of the car? No. Nope. Uh, my association with the panel shop paid off dividends because I took it and one of the master panel beaters there fixed it, uh, except for the bumpers, which are somewhere in a lockup 50 years later. <laughs> he fixed the front. Uh, headlights didn't work, so I drove around with no headlights for about a year. It was wow. all f uh, That was good. I used to use the street lights. You know, I never went in the, any, any woods or anything like that. <laughs> so your your job at the body shop paid off. Big time, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That uh, that's that was exotic work that you wanted to paint at a yeah, it was. body shop in the sixties. This guy was incredible. Fiberglass? Uh, fiberglass, absolutely amazing. You couldn't tell that it had been repaired. Wow. Did uh, he reshoot the whole car? Uh no, just the front. Um and I got it back, but he said I can't get the motors for it, you know, you destroyed one of the motors. So that he said, Do you want the headlights fixed up or down? I said, down, they're going to be down. It doesn't look so cool when they're up. Yeah. So, uh, then unfortunately, I just fell on hard times. I had to sell it, and uh, it grieved me deeply to have to sell it. Uh, the guy that bought it was Australian. Um, he knew he was taking me to the cleaners, <laughs> but uh, I let him have it. But alongside the money uh, I got for it, I got a thirty-two sedan. English 32, which I loved to, to death. Your first 32 Ford? First 32, yeah. I had the most fun in that than any other car I've ever driven. It's a two-door two sedan? I actually, uh, yeah, two-door. I actually uh, raced it around Hyde Park in the ice. And it's, um, I actually got the steering in full lock and it wouldn't come out. And it did a, a, a complete 180 but it wasn't close, it wasn't tight enough curve to avoid this lamppost, and it bounced off. It was so strong, the chassis and the bumper, it bounced off. And I thought, wow, there's no damage at all. It's very, 
very different from the Corvette. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but uh, Bonnie and Clyde had just come out, that movie, and so everybody thought, you know, he's trying to show off with a Bonnie and Clyde car. But I still love that car. Somebody's butchered it now. Was it bone stock when you had it? No, it had a, um, it had a Ford Pilot front end, hydraulic brakes, and that's it. And uh, the big wheels, you know the big, uh, the big early Ford wheels that had the big spacing, like sort of... Seven inch, I don't know what the box. Yeah, military yeah, wheels. massive hubcaps. Should have left it, but uh, I tore it down, put a Chevy in it. And that was my first real effort on the hot rod. Yeah, and what year would that have been now? Uh, right, uh, when I um, when I did that would be seventy. Seven, 1970. Pretty cool. Yeah, I put so a. Wasn't, there weren't a lot of people. Hot no, two in no. I've got I've got one picture of me sitting in it, um, in a in a shed which was full of coal dust, and my face is covered in coal dust. Fantastic picture. But um, it was the early days of taught, uh, you know taught myself to weld. And so was that the car? Would you say that's the car you learned to build a car? Yeah. Around. Yeah. Yeah. Learned the techniques. Yeah, the I cut the frame up and we put an X member in it. With gas welding, I didn't have any other form of welding, and uh, I drove it, and it rode pretty well. I had uh, I had Vauxhall Ventura rear coils, and it, without shock absorbers, it bounced up and down, and, and bounced. It carried on bouncing. I thought that's how it should be. If it doesn't bounce, it's not going to be worth anything. You've got to put the shocks in it to stop the bounce, but if, if without the shocks it doesn't bounce, you're going to have a really rough ride. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was, it was quite comfortable, but it was really shocking engineering underneath, you know. Bolts that were too long, you know, shitty gumball welds everywhere, but you know, you start somewhere, don't you, and you just improve. Yeah. Well, that's, it's just interesting to me that you were into those cars at that time Especially coming off the Corvette, because so many people were just deep in the muscle car thing by yeah. 1970 and GTOs. Yeah, no, it didn't. It didn't hit me. Like I had a Mustang, but only because it was convenient to buy that at that time. The, the Stingray was the thing, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but when I realized how dangerous they were in stock configuration, you know, with a six, I think it was 640 or 670, 15, you got about three and a half inches of rubber on the road. Uh, with with 330 horsepower, ridiculous. It's amazing any of them survived. Yeah, yeah. but I was also fa fascinated by Ed Roth's tea, tea bucket, little you know, uh, cherry pie. Was it cherry pie? Tweety pie. Tweety pie. Yeah. 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 Well, that answers kind of my next question. I, I was just like, what was your head in in 1970? I mean, were you reading like Rod and Custom? Yeah. You, that never really left me. And it didn't take much to rekindle it. You know, if I picked up a really good issue and I'd see something that reminded me of when I was like, you know, 10 or 11. Because my mum bought me my first Hot Rod magazine in 53. It was the first Rod and Custom. And I remember it like it was yesterday because they both took me to London to look at the coronation decorations. Not the actual event, but the whole streets were all lit up and stuff. And I was bored shitless, um, and I complained bitterly to go home. She said, right, we're not going home, read this. And she, she snatched this magazine with, with this 
this little it was a small page small little pages rod and custom yeah the worst cool. move she ever made <laughs> and i just saw this stuff in there and it sort of reminded my associate with my uncle with engines and chrome and stuff and i thought why would you chrome the axle why would you chrome any part of the engine it's an oily thing you know it's a nasty and i thought this is me i'll have some of this <laughs> Do you have that issue? You must. Uh, I some somewhere I have, yeah. Do you know what issue it was? June '53. June '53. Yeah. I think it was the first issue that came out, and that would correspond with the, uh, the coronation of the Queen. Hmm. So thank you, Queen. Without you, I wouldn't have. <laughs> it's true. The Queen uh, inspired a hot I could dog. take you to the same news agent that's still there in Soho. It's still there. It sells all foreign newspapers. You mentioned your uncle again. Yeah. I'm just curious, did he ever let you drive the TC? Yes, absolutely. And he let me drive a Lagonda because he, uh, he did all his own maintenance. And I remember he built a shelter for the car, which he'd never had before. And it was made out of bent steel hoops. And he covered it in tarred tarpaulin. The tarp was actually tarred. To, to retain the, you know, stop the water. You don't do that. You don't put anything tar, you know, material over your car if you're gonna have a naked flame. And what happened was he used to um, fill a, a small tin with petrol. He used to disconnect uh, the fuel line and then turn the ignition on. And he filled this uh, little tin can so he could use the brush and clean the engine with it. But he'd forgotten there was a, a lamp a sump lamp, which was to stop the uh, the engine, you know, in the cold, icy weather. And of course it went up. The whole thing caught fire, burnt the car to, you know, it was repaired, but it was gutted. And this uh, flaming uh, material just collapsed on him. And I went round to see him one afternoon. Uh, where I actually went to see my grand. And she said, uncle's in there, your uncle's in there and he's not well. And I could smell acrid smoke. I hadn't seen the damage, what had happened. And his hair was burnt off, the, the eyebrows burnt. And he said, uh, I had a bit of an accident. And that's what, what happened. You know, he, he set fire to his own car. <laughs> How devastating is that? Lucky he lived. Yeah. That was the point where that car went in, into repair. And for six months it was in repair. And the, he had a friend in a local ga gas station that lent him a Lagonda. And that was the... I mean, we're talking, you know, red label Bentley stuff. Yeah. But it was a, a maroon Lagonda. Like a big, proper, like, Le Mans. It, it had a right-hand gear shift. That's weird, isn't it? A right-hand drive car with a right-hand gear shift and uh, a gate shift. He let me drive that. So, just to be clear, we're talking like a late 20s, early 30s? Yeah, I, I don't, I, uh, it can't be, probably 30, 31, maybe 28, I don't know. Okay. Massive. But like a two-seater... Two-seater Lagonda. Wow. And wow. we were on this heath somewhere, which was a vast open space with heather. And he said, uh, right, you're going to drive this. And put a cushion under me. And I've, I never forgot the thrill of the, you know, this big wheel. What was I then? About eight, nine, maybe? Wow. Ridiculous. I mean, yeah. it, it takes a... I made it move. And that, he said, that's enough. <laughs> 
eight-year-old. I mean, it takes a pretty yeah. brutish dude yeah. to make I figured it maybe maximum ten, but I think probably more eight years old. Because when he found out that I started playing the guitar like 12, 13, that was it, out the out the door, mate. That's quite a start, man. Yeah. I mean, as far as the first yeah. car that you ever drive. Yeah. But my mum told me later, whenever she took to the movies, I would name every car that came on the screen. <laughs> mm. So you were a car, you were just a car crazy yeah. kid, no, yeah. no doubt about it. Yeah. Oh, I built soap boxes and stuff like that. It was just uh, what kids did, you know, I guess. Mm. Or you collect stamps, and I wasn't one of those people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're, you, you having an interest in 1970 to be building a... 32 Ford, and yeah. it all went back to yes. yeah. reading Hot Rod magazines yeah. and stuff, and yeah. kind of being a little kid in the 50s. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you, how did you continue this on through the 70s? Because like, <clears throat> you're obviously, you're getting really busy. Your career has yeah. to keep you really busy. Yeah. But you were still building. When I, I mean, the whole idea of, you know, I mean, I was still spinning from being, a professional player, you know, and uh, you, I never made it really huge. I mean, I never had massive billion-selling albums or anything like that, so I had to keep going, and I did. Uh, but uh, not far away from me, on any plane, was a, a hot rod magazine, and in the hotels, it, it, on airports, for the most boring places in the world, waiting hours for planes, it, you just read and read. So I was able to continue the interest throughout the 70s. And then, uh, you know, things eased off. And um, I, I think I built a tea bucket in 1971. So that was the, that was the Andes, Andes tea bucket. An Andes instant yeah. tea. Yeah, that's what you saw today. Cool, yeah. So that was the car that came after the 32 sedan. Yeah, was yeah I had them both at the same time. And then I went to the 71 Street Rod Nationals in Memphis, um, and I met Lynn Pugh, who's still a hot rodder. Pugh Palace, I think it's called, his website. And uh, the girl I was with said, good Lord, uh, I don't, I'm not interested in hot rods, but that. And it was a gasser, three-window coupe. I thought, if she likes it, then that's the good, good choice, you know. Uh, I could blame her if anything goes wrong with it. Yeah. <laughs> he took us for a ride in it, all three of us. That the driver and um, she sat, my girl sat on my lap, and he took up. I mean, this thing was built. He used to work for GM, so everything on that car was professionally done. There was a roll cage. It had a 456 Pontiac rear end, vicious clutch that you could hardly press, um, and about 450 horsepower engine. Oh Solid lifter, you know, 13 to one compression. Uh, Magneto. I still got all those parts. And he just trod on it in first gear, and we were just gone. I said, thank you, that'll do. <laughs> Went back to the hotel, and uh, out came the money, and that's it. And I drove it 600 miles from Memphis to Chicago. In that configuration, yeah. with 456 gears yeah. and 15 yeah. and... We didn't stay in hotels. We, we, used to, we parked in the, in the woods and hopped over the, uh, into a field and slept in the field just to save money. And then we got to Chicago and uh, we flew it. I, I saved all the money so that we could fly it. There's no way that was going on in ship. Yeah. And we watched it go in the cargo hold and uh, bye. And then three days later, I picked it up at Heathrow. 
that was the best thing ever. Man, oh man. The, the customs officer said, it's a very nice car, but you're not driving on, on our roads. I said, our roads? Huh? He said, well, you've got a mudguard missing. There was a mudguard. The guy um, had borrowed a new, a new old stock rear fender and wouldn't sell it to me. I said, well, I don't want to buy the car. He said, uh, no, I cannot. I promised to take that fender back. So it arrived with the right rear fender missing. And the, the customs guy said, you're not to drive this on the road. I went, right, oh. <laughs> and I drove for about six months without the rear fender. You're not going to tell me what to do, pal. Our roads, huh? Yeah. <laughs> like they were his. Well, clearly not a hot rodder. No, they were just, uh, things were miserable back then. Uh, there was much more police presence on the road, and uh, you had a quarter of an inch of rubber sticking out, they would, they would nick you for it. Hmm. Now they can't do that, because the motorcycles have got no fenders, you know, the, it's just bare tire sticking out. And no muffler. Yeah. The Harleys. Yeah. yeah. Thank um, you. <laughs> that car had to be just like an atomic bomb. Yeah, it was. People in, especially here yeah. in England. It was just the best. And you'd humiliate every car that, you know, has got a jag, you know, you're gone. You're just gone. Yeah. Didn't matter about the top end. It was just instant, you know, G-force. Yeah. All you needed was about an eighth mile. And yeah. And tried, yeah. Uh, I think that's partly the reason why I've got a back problem, because of the clutch. I had it for like, ten, I drove it for 10 years with that. And then the gas, no, not even that long. It was probably not, that, when they uh, took the lead out of the fuel, that was the end of that engine, you know. And you could tell which gas station was cheating because you put high test gear, you know, the top, the five star fuel in there and it would ping. And you go, wait a minute. I've just filled up with this expensive petrol and it's pinging. Yeah. That shit is, you know, low stuff. But you never went back to do anything about it. But I got so fed up with it pinging and I just retired the ignition and it would never run right. So I thought, okay, out with that engine and put, put a milder engine in it. Mm -hmm. Then I lowered the front, you know, all the things he shouldn't have done. <laughs> mm. Sold the front end. Do you think that car was an original Gasser class race car? It was built. I or mean, I have to did? ask, I did an email Lynn recently and I never got a reply, but uh, He'll tell you more about it. He was a GM dealer. He, he dealt with all, every GM part. The engine was built with, with the high post stuff. Mm -hmm. um, whether he raced it or not, I don't know, but it was so immaculate. Mm. It's flawless. We're talking flawless. Now, how long did you keep that car? Still got it. Oh, it you still have it's it? the Doyle Gamel car. That's that car? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. It wasn't chopped. It was stock high. It was bright yellow. That's why I... Thinking, what, what's this graffiti geezer? This <laughs> I had a yellow three window, and that, although it wasn't a five window and chopped, it, it still was a yellow thirty-two. So you had a yellow thirty-two before Milner. Yeah, that's why I identified with it so straight away. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm curious to know. I mean, man, going to going to the Street Rod Nationals in 1971. Yeah. That had to just be mind blowing. It was. It was the best thing. Had you ever been to anything like no. that to that point? In your no, life? no. I made sure that we were going to see what we wanted to see, and but we were flying blind, really. I just took a trip, didn't have a hotel booked, and we ended up staying at the Peabody, which is the best. <laughs> That's awesome. Man, I mean, I saw cars there, and I saw Andy Brizio, um, just 
friendly people, really nice folks, who are just uh, car, car nuts, you know. Um, but I was just walking around my jaw open, you know. I, I went out there to just try to find a cheap hot rod, a th you know, maybe a tea bucket, maybe a 32. And there was a five window, which was, I think it was $1,200, and it was the most immaculate five window. But the 32 three window was that so outrageous, jacked up at the front. Mm. Tube axle, custom tube axle, disc brakes. I thought, this is a runner. This car is going to go. And then we drove in it, and that was the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> you met a lot of people who would become your friends. Uh, you know, the Brizio. Yeah. I didn't uh, actually speak Lynn, to Brizio. you're still in touch with. Well, yeah, uh, that's true. But uh, it wasn't till. Did you, were Pete and Jake around later, at that time? Did you meet No, them? no, that was a bit, little bit mid-70s, mid I think. I'm trying to figure out the order of, I think the tea bucket was first, and then the, then the 32, three window, that's right. Andy's incident, that was right, 70. I, I did crash a, a, a tea bucket before, which I bought from a, a guy in Boston. It put me in hospital for a few weeks. Um, rebuilt that, sold it, I sold the tea bucket to John Bonham, the Led Zeppelin guy. Yeah. And uh, I think he got nicked in it the first night, he, first day he got it, he, he got fed up with being pulled over and then he sold it. He bought Andy's sea cab. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yes, and that's still going around exactly as it was. Yes. With a, with um, an art hymns or paint job on it. They had it in their movie, right? Yeah. When I thought it was my tea bucket, but then I saw the film and it wasn't there. Hmm. So, yeah, the 75, well, when I saw graffiti, that brings us up to 74, when graffiti had been, I think it was the second time round that graffiti came. And that's when I reluctantly went along to, to the movie theatre. Mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> was skipping when I came out. Did you have it in your head that you wanted to build that car? Right yeah. away. I just thought, I, I, I usually love, love a three window above a five, but that, the way that looked and the way it seemed, part of him, Milner, you know, I thought well, that would be part of me if I built it. <laughs> it became that. Yeah. You saw today. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I couldn't figure out what was so different and so, I don't know what different, it was a subtlety about the look of it that was not easily, you know, discernible. It's and I, when I saw the first copies of it, I thought, that's not right. The fenders are completely wrong, the wrong wheels. Uh, they're not wide tyres, they're slightly skinny tyre. You know, and I, I put my art school head on, you know, where I looked at proportions and... Uh, um, then I went forensic on it, you know, I had to go and measure it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And Pat Canal, bless him, took me along to the to the universal lot where it was. And what, do you know what year that would have been that you first uh, saw 76. 76. Because I was living out in LA then and I had time to, to, to go out there. Hmm. And he took me there, I think we, twice we went there. So that was part of the journey for you with that yeah. car was to kind of watch I wanted people. it so bad. It's almost like meeting your hero. You, you go, okay, I've met them, now what, you know. Uh, but I, I wouldn't have altered the car, no way. Um, but it was better off that I didn't get it because the guy that owned, ended up owning it cherished it more than I did almost. Yeah. And still does, for all intents and purposes. I don't know. Rick uh, for Gary, yeah. It's funny what a, a hunk of steel. <laughs> you know, not yeah, even a nice car, really. It's just uh, badly built. It's just the way it looks. And uh, it struck me as 
fabulous, you know, that maybe I could build one that rides better than that, you know. I think mine probably does ride better than the original. But boy, it's, like you say, it's such a specific car. Yeah. There's, I mean, just the silhouette of yeah. the car is so unmistakable. Yeah. There's no other car in no. the world that it could be. That's right. And, and this, it doesn't have a bad angle. It, do, it absolutely does not have a bad angle, and it's, it proves that, you know, sometimes people, uh, car people who aren't necessarily hot rodders will say, how many 32 Fords can you build? Yeah. Well, that's a to me, is the holy grail example. Yeah. Because that car is so unique. Yeah. That it proves there's an infinite amount of 32 Fords you can build. Yeah. And they can all be so different. Yeah. Radically different. I agree. Yeah. And you, you, we talked earlier today about this, but like, man, you've done some great work on like kind of pinpointing the specific, like you told me about the front fenders. I never, yeah. I never noticed that. <laughs> don't tell anybody. Okay, we, don't, we don't have to get into that. But what are, what are some of the things you were willing to, that you discovered that make that car that car? Okay, uh, mm. well, obviously the amount of chop and the fact that the, the roof had not been stretched. See, when you lower the, if you put a three inch or a four inch chop on a 32 five window or a three window, you're going to get a mismatch of the front A pillar. Mm -hmm. You've got the choice either that you, you tweak the upper and lower posts to match, which gives you a slight rake, or you stretch the roof by adding a, like the corresponding amount Add a section, yeah. to bring out the so the mouldings line up perfectly, but that then gives you the, the stock slope to the windshield. Doesn't look quite right. It doesn't look, on a five window. It needs to be tweaked back a little bit. I agree. The same with a three window. If you chop it, it should have a, a lean back more than the stock lean back, as it, as is evidenced by the uh, uh, Doyle Gamel three window. Mm -hmm. So that's number one, uh, number one, get the chop right. Um, and what was, how, how long did it take you to get? <sighs> should, I, should I ask a different question? How long did it take me to figure it out? <laughs> well, I was driving it around with the original chop, which is approximately two and a half inches. And every day I would go, do I really need to go through the misery to remove an inch out of that roof? And then once I made the first saw cut, I did it with a hacksaw. And uh, I think I had a electric saw, uh, an air saw as well, which I broke about 50 blades because it cut well, but because of the weight of the roof, it would just pinch the blade. Yeah. And I did it alone. I did not want anybody around when I did that. And at midnight one night, when I'd made the final cut, I thought, I'll have to wait till tomorrow to get help to lift the roof off. And I thought, no, I don't. I stood inside the car and lifted it on my shoulders. <laughs> The weight of it was astonishing. I can't tell you, just the roof, because somebody had filled it and the lead, there was loads of lead in the roof. Oh my God. So I'm going, I can't put this back down because it won't match. It, it won't let me. It, it won't let me. And I had to get out with this roof perched on my shoulders. <laughs> That's when I knew I should call the police and turn myself in. Uh -huh. you know? This might be why you have a bad back. So, that, that I'm sure it is. <laughs> I managed somehow to, to get it slid onto the ground and I plonked it down. And the guy that worked for me then, he came in and he must have thought, what the fuck's happened? Yeah. The car, the roof is completely off the car, lying on the floor. And then, then I got on it and uh, finished off the chop. It took me about a week to do that. Now, were you, 
Were you going back and looking at the original car? And Every minute of the day, I was checking it. So but any, because any time you could get back to see it, you'd go see it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I only saw it physically twice when Pat originally took me to see it. Mm -hmm. And then I got permission to go back with a view to buying it. And I, I still have a letter from George Lucas saying, uh, thank you for your interest, we'll, we'll consider your offer. And then I got another le letter from Lucasfilm saying uh, that my bid was not successful and it was sold internally, blah, blah, blah. Gutted. <laughs> That had to be a bad day, man. It was uh, a bad day, but then the challenge was build one, you know, so. Mm -hmm. And I had more fun building it, I think. Well, and now two of them. It wouldn't be right to be running around here with it. It, it belongs in, uh, in the valley. <laughs> you know what I mean? It really is part of American, you know, hot rod culture, so. It belongs there, parked at metals. Yeah, yeah it does, does. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know what? I, I look at it that way. There are two of them now. Mine. Now there are two of them. Yeah. The world's a better place. I want George Lucas to ring me up and go, Jeff, we, we've got to do another graffiti. Can we borrow your car, please? <laughs> <laughs> no. The other one's gone to Japan and we don't want it. We want yours. You could bring Paul It'd be interesting in. if they used it to see if anybody could judge. Obviously, I'd, I'd make a few more detailed changes on it, but um, there's a few things I know that are wrong, you know. But it's not bad. It ain't bad. I've just twisted enough to want to change, you know, <laughs> to uh, capture it so you can't tell the difference. Yeah. It becomes a ob stupid obsession, really, after a while. Well, man, did they, like I say, it's the feel. Your car yeah. has the feel yeah. of that car. Uh, that's where I stopped. I thought, this is pretty nice the way it is, you know. And as, a, as time unfolds, we'll, we'll spot something else that's not quite right and, and fix that. But, uh, you know, I've got the right amount of cut of chop on the, the grill. Uh, the firewall is more accurate than the real car itself because the firewall uh, panel was changed. If you look where in the center where the hinge is, used to be, mm -hmm. there's a half moon shape cut out. Now, that's not what, how the original car was. They cut out a notch to clear the, the firewall. Mm. See? <laughs> About time to get my pipe out, I think. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, you know, a friend of mine and I have a theory that every time you watch American Graffiti, you see something new. Yeah. That if you put the movie away, yeah. it keeps growing. Yeah. When you're not around. What an amazing thing. It does. It does. And you know what? Just since I said that, watch at the end something I noticed a couple of years ago. Just put me on the floor. When they're standing in front of Falfa's car and it's upside down yeah. on the side of the road, yeah. there's a chrome socket wrench sitting on top of the front rail. <laughs> now you are talking silly. That, <laughs> how fantastic is that? That wouldn't be there, would it? <laughs> no. Somehow. The car they crashed three cars in there uh, to do that scene, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some silver painted wheels, yes. which are not good, you know. Yeah. But there was such a low buck film that you forgive the, the minor detail, you know. Yes, all of it. Yeah. 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 Just a glorious, but the thing, it was so close to my heart already, you know, to, to be Milner, I mean, <laughs> heaven forbid, but I, I just feel that that was my, almost my character, you know. Mm. It, I was the English kind of Milner, I guess. <laughs> and did you, did you go back to the theater and keep going to see Yeah. Actually, but when I built the clone, I, I drove past the theater when it was when they were turning out. 
we actually, me and Ed Wimble drove to Seven Oaks where it was playing. And I, I couldn't keep still because I knew when the movie turned out, we were, <laughs> we were going to go right past the movie and people freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> they thought maybe we're in this sort of hyperspace. <laughs> there goes the character in the car. Have we left the film th movie theater? Oh, <laughs> did I have a drink or what? <laughs> so anything else you want to share about that car that you've discovered? Uh, it, uh, I remember that the article that Pat wrote, Pat Gunnar wrote originally was the, the graffiti star even smells as it should that gas leaks and burns in a, in a special way. That's exactly what happens. I've got uh, leakage and uh, horsehair stuffing in them. It's all there when you put your head inside. You just melt it. Oh, yes, yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah. Um, I even saw the, the chicken shit uh, yeah. tickets in the pouch. Yeah. <laughs> in the it, I mean, I could go on, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> have you spoken to... It's my turn now. Uh -huh. Have you... Uh, speak clearly into the microphone. Yes, what's your name have you, again? <laughs> did, have you come across graffiti clone owners? A couple, yeah. Right. And yeah. what was, were they, were they able to construct a sentence, you know? <laughs> Only using dialogue from the film. Uh, <laughs> it's nice to know that it's, it's uh, the bringing together of cranks, isn't it? It is. So there's a, a certain um, um, admirable quality about it. I think so. Everybody needs it, a hobby, right? I felt, when I saw that movie, when it came around, I remember in 76, I was out there for a long time, like maybe a year and a half, lived there up in the hills. And uh, I met this girl in a bar the night, one night, and I, she said, um, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, oh, well, I'm going to the movies because graffiti's showing again. And I took her along and she was mesmerized hmm. completely. I thought, this is great. How much does it take, you know, to, to convert somebody from not knowing what the hell or to, to educate them from the ground up? Mm -hmm. She said, that's such a great feeling movie. The, mm. it, it bonded, you know, had that, that uh, thing about it, universal. Well, to me, it's a deal breaker. Like if, yeah, if you don't know, you get don't the fuck. <laughs> there are two kinds of people. In yeah, <laughs> yeah. If I saw anybody walk out, I'd go out and chin them. I would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, I but it, the thing that 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 the the time span sixty uh, two uh, was a sort of no man's land, wasn't it? It was pre Rolling Stones, end of rock and roll. It's a bit Johnny Tillotson, Johnny, you know. Oh yeah, it was like beach blanket movies. Yeah. And, and stuff like that. I don't yeah. like that surfing shit. Yeah. That was, I mean, I, I thought, oh my God, this is fantastic. And, and the kid loves it. Don't you like the Beach Boys? Don't you think they're boss? I mean, oh man, you know, but she snaps the radio, or he snaps the radio. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this then. Have you ever considered building the 55 Chevy? No, no. Why that's, not? A, that's the other side of the street, you know. Can't afford to get involved in that. Um, what, do you, what do you mean by that? That's interesting that you say that. Well, um, A, I, I don't know. I, I don't think, you, you know, I want to go off the, the, the 32 Ford, 34 Ford thing, you know. Like it's not in my heart, you know, the 55. If I saw a 57 or 55, 56 even, um, 
that came for the right price. I don't know, do I really want to get involved in it's a bit late now, you know, for that. Um, so, tell me about kind of making it out the other end of the 70s and kind of discovering Pete and Jake. And yeah. Well, so, uh, I was friends with Dan Woods. I was, because I was based in SoCal for every time I went out there, it was based in SoCal for convenience. Um, I got to know Dan Woods and uh, Dennis Roth. I mean, priceless Dennis. I don't know if you know Dennis. I don't know Dennis. Oh. I got the, all the first first hand stories for, about Ed Roth. And mm. I, I'm thinking I'm in heaven. I'm looking out over the vista of LA. I'm thinking, I know someone down there that knows Ed Roth. You know? <laughs> and uh, then I got to him, Pete and Jake. But first of all, it was Dan Woods. Um, and Dan said, hey, very friendly, amazing guy. Still alive now today, I think. And uh, he said, hey, you want to come down to Long Beach? The, there's a hot rod just show down there. And I, I drive down there and there's this roadster. And it was Dick Rundell's car and I'd already seen it. I'd already been to Dick Rundell's house. And uh, it was just one of many that I was looking at. And I thought, okay, I never th thought I'd see it again. And there it is. So it was a message from above saying, this is your car, pal. And it had... Uh, a small ticket under the windshield on the windshield saying ten thousand dollars which what, was what year is this 76 okay maybe uh, nudging seven six, 77 maybe i don't know just about that time and uh it just glowed it, it was lit uh, there was a, a very dodgy candy blotch where they hadn't quite got the mix right you know there was a dark patch and i thought okay that's another bad selling or a good selling point for me, a good buying point. And uh, Ed, uh, uh, Dan said, I see you looking in that car, it's really something. It's got the E-Jag rear end on it. Had an E-Jag chromed rear end. Mm. Had uh, an Arden flathead with Webers. And I thought, oh my God. Even then, I knew this was the choice parts. And it had a Greyhound on the front. And I thought, wait a minute. That sort of works, it doesn't. Fenderless had a blue streak, you know, good years all around. Oh, cool. And it's old vintage stuff. Uh, and I, I didn't even know if it ran, but I thought this is worth having in your garage, even if it doesn't ever run. It's <laughs> a piece of art. Yeah. And so Ed, uh, Dan, I keep calling him Ed, Dan, Dan Woods said, right, okay, you're serious about this, are you? I went, why? He said, well, I know the guy. I said, well, I have to tell you, I've already seen the car and I didn't buy it. He said, it's a hell of a buy. As a matter of fact, we're going to remove this sticker price. So he took the fucking ticket off the windshield. I said, well, you, you can't do that. He said, I just did it. So it wouldn't be bought by anybody else. And there were no offers. And when the guy found out that, Ed, that Dan had taken the, the sticker out of the window, he went berserk. He said, I'm not selling it. He said, well, Jeff's got the money right here, you know. No question, the 10 is there. And he reluctantly sold it to me. I think he really pissed off, right? but I didn't take that, that tick, ticket out of the window. Anyway, the next thing is it's delivered and it's amazing. I'm in heaven, right? But the wheels, uh, on an E-Jag, you have to set the, the, the camber up correctly by you know shimming the, some spaces. So I was going along like this with both wheels canted in with like 
10 degrees mm. off, off centre. Mm. So Dan said, I will fix that free of charge. I talked to you into buying this car. Um, and I went down there and watched them go at it. It was like a, a bunch of the bees around a honeypot. They, went, they tore the rear end out and put the shims in it, straightened it up. And I, I said, what do I hear? He said, get the fuck out of here. And uh, I was away and I drove it. Um, but it was smoking. Like I said earlier, you know, there was a blue plume of smoke and people were giving me the finger about pollution and all that. And I lived up in the hills. And every time I went shopping in it, uh, the brakes lit up red hot because uh, there were drum brakes on the front and he obviously had trouble with the car because they were drilled, he had the backing plates drilled. Mm. But still, they failed at the bottom of the hill. I, every time I went shopping, I was going to die at the bottom of the hill because I wasn't sure I was going to stop. So I had to shift down to, to, to make the car come to a stop. They uh, still had the discs in the back on the jet? Yeah, they didn't work properly. Oh, it didn't work properly. Um, there wasn't enough. The back brakes are not enough. The fronts take 70% uh, of the braking or yeah. more. So uh, I call up Pete and Jay and I go, Pete, he said, bring it down. We're going to put a Chevy in it and get it running properly. I went to Australia and toured a small tour for three weeks, came back and man, Pete was there and we drove this thing. It was just heaven. He'd fixed the steering. He'd taken the original uh, drag link and which had springs in both ends, which was causing all kinds of wobbles, and put heim joints in there. So that, that immediately got more direct steering. And the car was a driver, a daily driver, for about six months. Hmm. And then I shipped it back here. And what'd you do with the Arden motor? I sold it to Don Ferguson. Oh, yeah. Who turned up at my house with the little two-barrel Stromberg sticking out of it. <laughs> and the sti uh, 63 Stingray, I think it was, 64. Crazy. Yeah. And then I realized he was the, the Arden king. You know, he bought everything Arden. Mm -hmm. So I sold it for 2,000, I think two and a half grand, which covered all the cost of the Chevy transplant. Mm. And, and when, is that, is that when you met Pichaporis? Yeah, that's when we st started getting to know one another. Do you know who directed you to him? Said you got to take oh, this well, um, you know, I can't remember. I just remember the top shops mm -hmm. in SoCal. Um, Dennis told me about, you know, was told me about Dan Woods and introduced me to the, how did I meet Dan? Oh, no, I met, I met Dennis through Dan Woods because I think Dennis was working with him. That's right. And then it unfolded from there. And then I must have turned up at Pete and Jake's. I just turned up, I think, and then um, they knew who I was, and you know, it was fine. Boy, he was a good dude. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Jake was great. They, they've both been to my house. And uh, uh, do you want to hear a story about, about um, Jake? This is how cool he was. Um, I think they stayed the night. Uh, it was just him. And... Uh, he said, I've been up to your, your, sh your shed and there was, a hot, there was six hot rods in there. And the 34, I said, uh, I told him that the night before, I told him that the, the master cylinder had, got a, uh, had gone, leaking. He'd finished, he'd fixed that before breakfast. <laughs> I don't know what tools he used because he didn't even know where they were, but he said, I fixed your, your master cylinder. Wow. Honed it. I don't know how he, how he did it. 
he just cleaned it out with a piece of emery or something, put it back together, and we were all rocking. Wow. Amazing. That's a good dude. It's a good friend to have. But those guys, I mean, um, we're talking about metal craftsmen, top end. Mm -hmm. I don't know if Pete actually did that so much as chassis stuff. I think he was hands-on with the chassis. But, I mean, uh, Jake was doing repairing 34 grills that were completely trashed you know and he'd re he'd beat them straight and then polish them and grind them and incredible craftsmen hmm. and then uh you got uh pete eastwood another genius Absolutely. he could actually build a 32 chassis out of a <laughs> out of some mashed up tin cans you know yeah yeah he's he's amazing amazing that Great. that barricade eastwood sedan got me going i built a clone of that <laughs> Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah, I love that car. Yeah. Love that car. And I love it that it's really fast. It made the the front cover of Hot Rod, and it won awards all over the place in Primer. In Primer, yeah. Because it was the first salute to low-back rods, you know, yeah. and how great they look. Yeah. They can look. Yeah. But I think uh, the most single-handed uh, significant improvement in street rods and chassis in general was Pete. Mm. I mean, the Vega steering may be somebody else's genius idea because that's standard fitment now. But I think Pete, with his uh, Teflon line springs, uh, Vega steering and four bar, that made cars drivable uh, in a big way. I mean, uh, cross country you could go with one of their suspensions, and one of their chassis. And, uh, you know, that, that, that was the springboard for the multi-billion dollar industry and the suspension parts. I'm pretty sure about that. I would and they all follow agree. suit. Yeah. There was uh, a few others. Um, let's not uh, forget those. Mr. Roadster. I mean, he was around in North Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Great guy. I mean, absolutely amazing. Um, but then they focused on how can we make this car run as good as it looks? Yeah. And that's what they did. And, and while using an I-beam axle yeah. and, and a knife. Yeah, had to have that. I mean, uh, the, the heights front ends are great, but they just don't look right. Yeah. If it's low and on the ground with fenders, you're right, but uh, otherwise leave it. You can ride, ride a, a beam axle car and it's fine. Absolutely. You just dial it in so the car bounces. Without the shocks, if it doesn't bounce, you're going to have a shitty ride. That's the end of the story. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. I mean, those guys really kept traditional hot rodding alive. They did. That they, plus the movie, Graffiti. Um, that plus Graffiti. <laughs> that would be the concoction yeah. that, kept, that kept it all going. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, using Ford-based, I mean, they were still Ford-based cars, whether they had yeah. a Chevy in them, yeah. and if they had a Vega box or whatever. Yeah. Again, I-beam axle, buggy springs, yeah. the same ingredients, the same basic ingredients yeah. the guys had been... Yeah. Since the 30s. Well, look at the adverts in the in the, the magazines. When that started, the difference between the advertising in the first Hot Rod magazine was that some homemade little <laughs> yeah. a cartoon drawing. We can make your car go faster for fifty dollars. Or no, not even that. Uh, to what it is today, incredible. And look at SEMA. You know the SEMA. Well, I'm going to be a pl I'm I'm going out there. To, That's right. I'm going to be playing there with yeah. Billy Gibbon. Yeah, Mr. Thacker put all that together. Right? The only frustration is you've got a, a million miles of, of hot rod parts that you can't buy. 
They're just con they're not concessions, are they? They're just yeah. display. They're just for display. Yeah. yeah. Product launch. Believe product. me, I will walk out of there with something. <laughs> I'm sure you will. I, I, I think they would uh, help you out with what other, whatever build you're doing. Yeah. So, going into the 1980s, you're, I mean, you're now, how many cars would you say you had in your stable by the time the early 1980s roll around? Mm. Uh, I can't say offhand, probably 15. And most all of them Ford-based hot rods, yeah. 32 Fords? Yeah. And Every time I, I would um, nail a 32 body style, I go, oh, I've just seen a, a sedan with fat, huge fat wheels on the back and 12 spokes on the front. I have to have that. Mm. <laughs> We're off again. Because there's always another car. You can never shake it off. It's a terminal disease. There's always another car to build. Yeah. What, what, what do you, how do you think about the 80s as far as your time? Fallow period, I think, you know, I mean, discuss. But, but what were you doing and what, what were you doing? With nothing, nothing. Uh, I even had my record company ask if I was still playing the guitar. <laughs> mm. I hated everything. Um, I just didn't hate what was going on. I just resented the fact that great stuff was being left behind. Just as I did with the car thing, you know, when they started putting out the horrible, ugly, I call them, they, they're like inverted jacuzzis with wheels. Mm. You know, they're like plastic water tubs. They're not, there's no real quality or artistic, you know, pizzazz about them. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not talking about the supercar, I'm talking about the everyday saloon car, you know. You see a, a, a traffic jam, which one's which? <laughs> they all got the same rake, the same hideous, front expression. Same silhouette. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're all made in the same wind tunnel. If you forget where your car's parked in Disneyland, forget about it because... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's really too bad. I mean, the, the guys who used to make those cars from clay in a design studio, well, those guys are gone. I've always maintained, why did they ever try to beat the 36, 36 and 30, well, up to about 36 was about the most beautiful cars ever built. You know, the 36 three window, you can't argue with that. Yeah. And the 36 Roadster, the Cabriolet, um, say 28 to 36, they had it right. Um, just shut the shop from that point on or, and forget about it. Don't try to improve it. The fat fender one turned into slab sided things, you know, um, lost the charm for me completely. If it ain't fixed, uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Did it did it mean anything to you when the '90s, as we went into the 1990s, young guys started building traditional '40s yeah. and '50s style hot rods again? Yeah, I liked it. There was a one, there was one program on there which dealt specifically with 32 Roadster, and uh, it was one of these car building programs. I thought, yeah, there's a whole movement that's replacing the, the, the older boys that have now died or retired from the business. Mm -hmm. And uh, your Jimmy Shines and people like that, you know, they flew the flag and still are, presumably. Um, Boyd, Conned, I wasn't too much in love with Boyd's cars because they were too high-end, too billet, too removed from the original um, aesthetics that I, I like, original windshield, you know, um, 
and not one piece front ends and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, he could take a 34 Roadster and make, make it something you wouldn't piss on if it was on fire. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like 200 grand, you know. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, people wanted to build their dream through him. Yeah. And the same goes for Brizio there. They're older guys, you know, have to say it. You know, they, they've got the money, they've got the pension money, whatever, and they can build their dream. Albeit 50 years late. <laughs> yeah, well, the car they wanted when they were a kid. Yeah. You know? And it's it, it, it's a funny thing. You know, there are kind of like two diff there are two classes of, of guy who, in their older years, I think, have these cars. And they both started having them. Yeah. As having them when they were kids. Yeah. But the one guy, he went off and did something, started a family, started a business, whatever he did. Uh -huh. And then he tried it, and then he came back to it. Yeah. And then there are the real maniacs who never left it. Yeah. Who stayed 17 yeah. Yeah. their whole lives. It never left. I don't think, you know, even when I was on a plane reading Hot Rod magazine, it would be read in 10 seconds. Whereas the th Rod and Custom would be 10, 10 weeks <laughs> looking at the same picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to ask you earlier, I mean, was there ever a time where your car obsession was a problem for your... Yeah, right now... To your prof no, I mean, <laughs> seriously, like to your profession, yeah. like such a distraction, yeah. and you're trying to make records, yeah. you're trying to tour, yeah. and, uh, but you're chasing a car in Oklahoma, yeah. and you're yeah. obsessing about it. Well, no, I, I was smart enough to know that if I got out of the business or couldn't be in the business... That would be the, the the big gate would shut. Because you can't fund can't it. Can't fund it. No. Yeah. Um, you can't go to uh, America every five minutes and, and buy parts and come back and not pay bills, you know. Yeah. And like I said, I never really made huge big time record sales, which is where you really want the money, the unearned income. Yeah. Um, and it was only touring that I made my money out of. Yeah. I've spent. I I've worked really hard. I mean. You know, you've no idea, you know, what I went through. Mm. Oh, my back. But it's true. And I, whatever I've, what you see is through just hard touring, really. Yeah. Um, even, even back in the 70s when records were half million sales and one million. The record company took a lot of it. And then the tax man took the rest. <laughs> mm. And the hot rods took whatever. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But I think if you are committed to anything, you, you can make it happen. I do believe that. Obviously, the, you've got to be reasonable about it, but if you've got the drive, you, you can achieve, you know. No matter what your situation is. Yeah. 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 Because you, you, you still see guys do it. You still see guys do it who are involved in the yeah. traditional hot rod scene. Maybe there's a, a spiritual helping hand that helps you get on. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I... I can't believe I've been at Riverhall for 42 years. You know, if somebody said, do you realize what that's going to cost, that place, is the tile's going to fall off? Yeah, yeah, all right, fix the tile. Uh, that window needs replacing or you've got damp coming up. Uh, and also, I have to tell you that the tax has just gone. <laughs> Somehow I'm still here, you know. Mm -hmm. It's all because of the belief, I think, you know, and, you know, and uh, put on putting on a reasonably good show, I think. That's all you can do. Do your mm -hmm. best. Yeah. Well, I think on that note, we've got a good little uh, podcast. Here. All right. <laughs> <laughs>
And, uh, it's a fun is, day. This has really been fun, man. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, thanks again. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, folks, my, 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 how are you going to top that? What a great time. What a fun episode. We sure hope you've enjoyed this. We want to thank our guest, Jeff Beck, and his wife, Sandra, for their over-the-top hospitality and uh, for giving us so much of their time. It is, it's definitely a day we uh, won't soon forget. Also, a shout-out to their two awesome Border Collies, uh, Wilf and Patty, who shared their parents with us and uh, also made some silent appearances during the interview. Uh, so that was a pretty good time. Of course, we want to follow up on something Jeff mentioned in the interview. He does have a new book out called Beck 01, and it's available through Genesis Publishing and is well worth the cost. Uh, believe me, I've seen it. It's amazing. Great, great photos through the years covering Jeff's life in those two great camps that uh, we talked about earlier, Hot Rods and Rock and Roll. So definitely pick up your own copy today. Um, also, a huge, huge thank you has to go out to our good friend, Tony Thacker. Tony put this all together for us. And uh, without Tony's 40-year friendship with Jeff, I'm not so sure this could have been coordinated. So uh, big thanks there. And uh, you can look forward to a future Rodcast episode with Tony that uh, I know you'll all enjoy. Yet another lifelong hot rodder and great friend of the American Hot Rod Foundation. Special thanks as always to our announcer, Larry Babb, and all the staff here at Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood. Uh, our PR person, Angela Helton. Our social media person, Crystal Hayes. Technical assistance from Eric Curtis and Katie Sloan and uh, our little theme song by me and uh, special thanks as always to our archivist and historian Jim Miller who's always doing the heavy lifting the American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Steve and Carol Mamishian without their generosity and passion for preserving the history of hot rodding none of this would be possible uh as always, if you'd like to learn more about the Foundation, please check us out on our website, ahrf.com. Uh, you can support us there by checking out our merchandise. Uh, you can also sign up uh, and receive updates on all things going on with the Foundation, as well as learning when new episodes of the broadcast are uh, about to hit. So generally keep up with us that way or get on Instagram, Twitter. We have a great Facebook page, if I do say so myself. So please check that out. Once again, huge thanks to the great Jeff Beck for spending time with us and sharing his incredible story and uh, his passion for all things hot rodding. We thank you for tuning in. And until next time, keep it wheels down, heading straight. And we'll see you here for the next episode of The Rodcast.
Thanks for listening to another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.